Greetings all. Welcome back to the Coptimizer podcast. Got another exciting episode. Today we have Chief John Mann from the Noblesville Police Department. Noblesville is a suburb of the Indianapolis metropolitan area. Well, Chief, thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. And we're going to talk all things wellness today, but you didn't start at the Noblesville Police Department, so maybe uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself and where you got your where you got your start in law enforcement. Yeah, thank you. What an honor to to be here and talk with you, Chief. I appreciate that. Yeah, I started my law enforcement career in '92 with uh, back then it was the Indianapolis Police Department, and then in uh, 2006 it merged to the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department along with the Marion County Sheriff's Department. So, uh, yeah, I did uh, several things, spent about half my time in patrol, half my time in investigations and uh, admin work. So I guess uh, probably a three prong triangle there for my career. Um, advanced up through the ranks and then an opportunity in 2020 came uh, to, to, to the current position I'm in now with Chief of Noblesville. Uh, so it's been a, a great blessing for me uh, to move my career through. And to uh, end up in this juncture uh, of my career with 100 officers, 102 officers up here, a, a bunch of uh, guys and gals that really just love uh, serving the community. We're lucky up here. We have a lot of community support. We've got great support by our mayor, great support by the council, uh, great support by the citizens. And as you know, as chief, if you can get those three things lined up, Man, you are limitless to what you can do. You, uh, it's it's usually left up to to our offices to determine, uh, you know, what the, the limit of what we can bring the citizens are when you have all three of those working in the same direction. It it certainly helps, and that's one of the things I think we're blessed with. Generally, in Indiana, mo in most of the state, is very supportive, and I and I venture to say that even in areas where sometimes we think that there is low support for the police. That's generally not true. It's just the loud voices tend to drown out everybody else. And, and you know, sometimes it's kind of like uh, people just don't want to, you know, don't want to argue. They just don't want to, they just don't want to get stuck in these positions where they feel like uh, they're going to get attacked from all sides. And sadly, now as police officers, you don't really have a choice. You're going to wade in whether you want to or not. And people are going to drag you into it whether you want to or not. But um, yeah, we do have a ton of of support in our state, and that and that does feel good. Yeah, and it's and it's tough because uh, you know, like I say, there's only two entities left in society that tell people no, and that's us, the police, and HOAs. And neither <laughs> sometimes neither one of them are liked very well. Uh, but other well, than that, definitely not uh, the people that run the HOAs, right? Right. The, the right. ones that are sending out the emails, right? So um, other than that, you know, we don't, we as a society in America, we don't like to be told no. And that's, that's kind of our business. That's what we're paid to do is tell people no. So it's tough. It, it can be tough to to garner that. And then it's even tougher to keep it. Well, you know, I love our fire partners and we've got great rivalries, but we, I was just involved in one of these conversations the other day and someone was like, you know, the firemen, they've got it kind of nice because 
they never have to tell people no. They never have to arrest people. And when they show up, they're always the hero when they show up. So <laughs> they have a complete different reputation uh, than the police. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a great relationship up here in Noblesville, and I'm sure as most communities do, but we love our firefighters. We get along great. And I think that starts at the top. Me and the fire chief get along great. Um, but yeah, we we do poke fun when we can because believe me, they're poking it right back. <laughs> well, I you know, I also had another saying, it's like it, it, along these lines, right? Cops, coaches, and teachers. Like the three professions that people have never done that always think that they could do better than the people that are actually doing it, right? Uh, like, so true. Yeah, I've never been a police officer, but I've watched Starsky and Hutch. I've sure, watched right, Hill right. Street Blues. I've watched yep. uh, you fill in the blank, right? I've seen it all. Right. Uh, I played high school football. Therefore, I know, you know, what the coach should be doing. He should be calling different plays. Right, right. And, <laughs> And we've all been to school, right? So we always know, uh, we all know from the outside what the best way is to run a classroom in, in today's world. Yeah, so true. Yeah. Not to say that people don't have their, their they're not entitled to their opinion, right? Because we all do, uh, we all, these are all positions where you're servants and sure. you have to have, you have to have support if you want to have any type of legitimacy and, and, and be effective. And I think that's sometimes where, where we run a rise. We, we, we lose that that relationship. Um, we get it gets lost in the minutia. Yes, I digress though. So you worked. You started. Uh, are you from in the Indiana area? Is, is yeah, I, I grew up on the south southwest side. I went to Decatur Central High School and then uh, Indiana State for my undergrad. And uh, then when I was working late tech late tech shift um, back in two thousand and six through two thousand and eight. I was able to um, go back to Indiana State and get my master's degree, um, kind of a, a butt in seat um, classroom environment. So I was able to travel over there uh, during the afternoons and then come back to catch late tech shift for the uh, evening to run run a squad. So uh, that was a great opportunity for both. Uh, in crimp, my uh, undergrad was in business, and then my master's program was in criminology. So by then, I'd had enough police experience to really tie in the two. And then uh, the criminology team over at Indiana State was just phenomenal, uh, not only working with me and my schedule, but how they allowed me to combine the two and in, in, in discussions. And when we talked to um, the professors about, you know, the future of policing, what are we looking like? What are we looking like with, uh, you know, not only policing itself and younger officers coming in, but how does that mix with the community and what's expected out of the profession of law enforcement? So I was very fortunate there. I think that kind of springboarded my career and then had a wonderful career with uh, Indianapolis Metro. Um, I still love that place to this day. And then, uh, man, am I blessed to be where I'm at now? Yeah, that's cool. So Indiana State, uh, it's kind of a hidden gem, their criminal justice program uh, in the state. I know we, we've we had, I think, at least five or six of our commanders that have all gotten their master's degrees uh, down there at Indiana State. They did the same thing, right, that they, they were able to flex their time a little bit, go down, um, take classes in the afternoons uh, a couple days a week, come back, because, you know, Terre Haute is... Um, for those that are not familiar, it's in the western part of the state of Indiana. It's not necessarily easy to get to from Lafayette. From Indy, it's a straight shot over I-70, but 
Right. Lafayette, it's a, it's a little bit, it's, it's a little bit more of a struggle. It's and uh, we're getting ready also to fix our, our ability to, to get from Lafayette to Evansville. Uh, of course, well, to get to Evansville from anywhere in the state of Indiana, right? Ooh. With the, with the I 69 corridor. Coming oh up. Gosh. <laughs> Evansville is a long drive, no matter where you're coming from. Yeah. You know, they've got a great chief down there, uh, Billy Bolin, uh, Phil Smith, those guys, they do an amazing job. So I've, uh, in, in my, in my retirement days, I've, uh, I've had the opportunity to go down there several times as well. And I, every time I go now, the drive gets shorter and shorter because oh, they're, wow. they're getting closer and closer for that I-69 <laughs> uh, extension to be done, but right. I digress. So um, earlier in your career, you, you worked patrol uh, for the Indianapolis Police Department. And yes. one of my first guests on the podcast, I had Tim Horty, who is the executive director for the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy. And uh, yes. I was for fortunate enough to serve um, with with Tim as a member of the uh, the law enforcement training board my last couple of years uh, before I retired. And we got into some good conversations about his early days at Indy Metro. Did you have a chance to work with him at all or? Yeah, he, uh, you know, he always had rank. So as I was coming on, you know, he was, uh, I think as I was growing up, he was commander of West district, I believe at the time. Um, so I didn't work directly under him or for him, but always was in the circles with him. Um, you know, it, his success is, is not a surprise to anybody. Uh, the way that he can communicate, just his kindness. Uh, I think that's what law enforcement, you know, back in the 90s and 80s really needed was guys like him that could work so well within the communities, be tough uh, in meetings when they needed to be, um, handle policy when they needed to handle it in a police environment. But anybody who has met him talks about just how genuinely nice and, you know, compassionate he is. And that's exactly what I think our profession needed. I would have liked to have seen him stick around Metro for another <laughs> 10 or 12 years. Uh, so I could have worked with him on a leadership level. But uh, no, just a, a great guy. And I think with having him at the Law Enforcement Academy and and just his attitude and, and the way that he presents the area that he's working with um, is exactly what we're going to need to push this profession forward. Yeah, I agree. One of the discussions that we had gotten into was about, of course, about training and about the future of policing. And I think the general public sometimes doesn't have a good perspective on how on the, what that challenge is. Is how do you find the right person with with the right mixture of character, integrity, of honor, um, and also have also have the right temperament and and skill set and the ability to learn you and then you put him in an, a, a training environment and you know his challenge at the academies we only have them for 14 to 16 weeks and and the rest of it really is up to the agencies and it, when you come from an agency like is like a big metro department like like indianapolis or really you know and you i think you can extrapolate that around the country Typically, large agencies have very robust in-house training programs where their officers aren't going to see the street by themselves in a solo environment with, you know, any real amount of 
a responsibility for a long time until they've really been tested and, and thoroughly vetted in the training environment. But that's not that's not the way policing is at every police department. Um, you you go right down the road, 20 minutes outside of Indy, and you're in some pretty rural areas where you may only have five officers or 10 officers. And that's the same all the way around the country. And they just don't have the same resources. So it, when you're trying to train a, a, a large group of officers, they're, they're all coming from different places. So we got into some fascinating discussions about what the best way to do that moving forward might be. And uh, you, you've certainly experienced it now. I'm, it's, the reason I get, get to all this is because I'm really curious as to what your perspective is coming from a large agency. And, you know, Noblesville is not a small community, um, but it's a much smaller department sitting right next to a much larger department. So what what was that dynamic like um, moving over? Yeah, it was, uh, I think it was the dynamic of the, the community, the smaller community, you know, with Metro being so big, we, you know, we worked out of six districts. So each one of those six districts kind of work as its own department per se, you know, and, and they all kind of meet together in the middle. Um, uh, whereas up here, I mean, this is a, a, a family environment. The accountability up here is so much different than down there. I mean, uh, even the smalls, and I'm sure you've seen that in your community, uh, we sweat the small stuff up here. Down there, you don't sweat the small stuff. Um, things that wouldn't be a blip on the radar, uh, say, to Metro is a big deal up here. So it's kind of what the expectations of the community lay out, which can be tougher, easier for the patrolman, but much tougher for the chief. Uh, you know, as I'm sure you understand how that goes. Um, and down there, it would be uh, much easier on the district commanders. Not that they don't worry about it, but the volume is so much greater uh, that you can't stop to worry about some of the smalls. And up here, uh, we can worry about it all. And. So you got to uh, balancing those two. Um, like I said, the, the first thing that hit me was the support of the whole community, uh, the council and the mayor's office. Um, not that they don't have the support down there, but it's so big to get all those factors to line up together can be tough. And up here, um, you know, we're still a, a community of 70, 72,000 now. Um you know, hundred man department. I mean, we still are, are growing in size, uh, but to see that so quickly come together with their expectations was, it was really nice as a chief, as you can imagine. Yeah. And it definitely, I think having your, the background that you had uh, certainly brings a, a high level of credibility to what you're going to be able to bring to the organization, right? You've, tremendous amount of working experience, a lot of job knowledge. Um, but it is right. It, those, it really can be two different jobs, um, at the same time and, and trying to manage different expectations. So, um, going back a little bit, your early days on patrol, um, in, in the, in the mid nineties in the Indianapolis area, um, what, you know, what were some of the, what were some of the challenges that you, that you faced or some of the opportunities even that you had as a young patrol officer working in a large metropolitan area like that? Man, those were the, those are the glory days, right? <laughs> when I look back on it, I, I think of that all the time, reminisce about how great it was. And, and we didn't have, and maybe that was because we didn't have the technology they've got today. Um, you know, we were using old MDTs. We, you know, wrote notes on our hand. 
Um, we had a notebook. Um, the technology that's in these cars today is incredible. Technology that's on their bodies is incredible. Uh, everybody now has a cell phone. Um, you know, if you're, if we're not careful, and this is one of the struggles I'm sure that, that you face too, but we can allow technology to hinder what we do in this profession. And we can allow technology to move us further and further away from community policing. And I saw that transition happen um, in, oh, probably 2014, 13, 14, maybe a little bit before that when officers went to uh, typing their own reports. Right. And people think, well, well, you know, hey, that's that's good for me. You know, get some downtime. Well, and I tell people. When you when they spend in two to three, four hours of their day typing reports, that's two to three, four hours a day. They're not out on somebody's front porch talking to somebody about the weather, talking about the game, asking them if they're going to go to the race. All the things that we want with public safety, we've thrown so much technology on them now that they can't do that. And so now they're forced to be uh, basically stuck in this car as their office for their entire eight hour shift. And it was sad to see that happen. And I think we, as law enforcement, I know this is a whole, this takes us in a whole different direction, but I think we got confused in the 90s with community policing because that was what was tied to the federal money. And so we thought by just throwing stuff at people, that was community policing. Because we're out handing out turkeys, that's community policing. Because we're, we're getting your heat turned on, that's community policing. What we lost was the ability of when they when they dig in and they talk about community policing the way it was in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, it was because those beat officers knew everybody. And when you were having a problem with your home, you were having a problem with your child, you talked to that beat officer a lot like we talked to friends. And that was the relationship that began community policing. Um, so we've got away from that now. And so um we we don't we spend so much time in the car, so much in the time doing uh, paperwork that we've lost that ability to get out and connect with the people. Yeah, I I had a saying that I used that I used to talk to uh, when we had our citizens academies classes. Like technology, uh, it can be a great force multiplier, but it can also be a great divider um, because it can create this environment where your your officers, particularly your patrol officers, you can when they're driving through neighborhoods, they're they're going to someplace rather than being a part of it. So the technology can actually create them, make them a part from the community, not a part of the community. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I told that story uh, on another podcast where you know one of my first FTOs, who was just one of those guys that could talk to anybody, I learned so much from him. And it, you know, he would never let me have my window down or my window up. My window always had to be down. Didn't matter how hot it was. It didn't matter how cold it was. He's like, right. you got to be able to hear, right? You got to be able to smell. You got to have a feel for the street. And the only, that's that's the only way that, that you get to do that. But yeah, so I, I, maybe one of the things, I think what you're referring to on the technology perspective, Indy Metro, you guys always used to use the uh, transcription service. So yes. for an officer that completed when you were finished with a uh, a service run, you could get on a phone, uh, get on a tape recorder, and then uh, just transcribe your police report or call it in. It gets recorded and then somebody transcribes it for you. So, so 
the you know this is i'm glad you brought this up because there is now technology you know we were we were big axon customer in lafayette and we we did a lot of alpha and beta testing for their technology one of them is digital notepad and that technology which is now live and operational is it gives the officers the ability through their body camera to auto transcribe their police reports so you can just get on your camera at the end of a call and you can transcribe. And we had actually the opposite um, effect for our patrol officers because they were so used to typing their police reports when they got done that their brain, you just process information differently when it's going from your brain to your fingertips and you're writing, you can actually think. And then uh, some of the feedback that we were getting early on was officers were having trouble. They did, you you know, anytime something's new, it's, it's it's always can can create a little bit of stress, <laughs> but the idea of just being able to talk through their their narrative is just like oh yeah they were really struggling with it so right. um, I'll have to follow up with them and see see how that's coming along but of course again there is a technology solution uh, when your when your calls for service are still running high uh, if when your when your manpower is not where it needs to be you look to technology solutions to fill in those gaps to create uh, more space. And I think in the end, when it comes to community policing, what we're all trying to do is create more time to have meaningful interactions with people where we can actually problem solve and do something um, rather than just show up and write it down, right? Because right. that's that, a lot of what we do. We turned out doing that. And I think that was the air of the ways with Metro when they, when they left it, because what they looked at was like, whoa, um, we're taking, you know, they, they were looking at stat sheets going, oh, the officer's out of service for four hours a day. Well, that leaves four hours that we can fill with him doing his own reports, four hours that we can fill with him doing other things. And when you do that, that takes them right out of what we're trying to get done, you know, of, yes, communicating, talking, solving, spending time in those neighborhoods, spending time on the basketball court, stopping out, talking to people when they are not calling you for service, that's the, that's the big key. You know, people, you know, it's, it's, if you can get a, if you can talk and build relationships outside of a a 911 call emergency, it sure goes a lot farther. And that's what they did back in the day when this community policing back in the, the very, you know, early, early days, uh, that's what everybody still reverts and talks back about, you know, how great it was back then. And most of that generation is not even around anymore. But that's that's what we hear about. And then everybody's been fighting to get back to it since they just look at it the wrong way. It's not about how much time I can fill up with this officer every day that he's, you know, utilizing every second. It's almost the opposite of that. What are our expectations for that officer going out to the community? And and we push that hard up here in Noblesville. Right. We we spend a lot of time talking about what are we giving back without going somewhere with our hand out? And whether that's taking a, a coffee mug to somebody, whether that's stopping in asking them, I don't need anything from you, but what can I do for you? Kind of that servant mentality is what we've really been pushing hard, not only with our officers and supervisors, um, but with how are we showing that servant mentality to the community? The universe is always seeking balance, right? Right. So you, and this is, be an interesting, again, another little interesting sidebar, but I think also very timely because the other day I was read uh, I was reading a, an article on LinkedIn. They were talking about 
the homicide clearance rate in the city of Chicago. And uh, it has been, it's been very, very low for, for years now. And if you're an outsider, if you don't understand policing and you look at that, right, the, the very, especially if you kind of, you're coming from a place where you have a mistrust of the police or you don't understand policing operations, you're, or if maybe even coming from a political perspective, the the first thought might be is, well, we have an ineffective police department because we have low clearance rates. That means our our detectives are not very good or our patrol officers are not very good. And, you know, there's, you know, that can, that can lead to a lot of problems and it's, and it's, it's patently false because there are so many things that play into that. So you spent time in investigations in, in, in a, in a large metropolitan environment. What I, what I used to tell people all the time is at the end of the day, your police department is in the information business. That's really what that it, we're at the center of that. And information comes from relationships. Um, and if if people, uh, sure, there you know on the modern side, there's a lot of a lot of ways that we can scrape data. There's things that we can do on the analytics side to capture really strong data that can point us in the right way. But on the other end of the spectrum, it's it's a people business, and people have to have relationships, and that's how you get information. And if people don't share good information with you, you're in big trouble. You know, you're going to have a hard time getting anything done in your community. Yeah, and that's what we're seeing in these big cities because the tr- what I call the circle of trust is broke. And it's broke with the judicial system. It's not broke with the police officers. But when you have something happen in these communities, um, whether it's drug-related or not, and you have uh, you know a, a big case working like a murder, you're right. It takes a lot of witnesses. Those people in that community have to really put their neck on the line because they're not leaving those communities. It's not like they can raise their hand, tell these officers everything they saw, and then go find some shelter, uh, some place to hide when this is over. So when they put their necks on the line to tell the officer everything they saw to build the case, only to see the suspect back out on the street the next day, that sets fear inside the community because everybody knows what was said and what was told. So when that trust breaks down, people start not talking because they fear for their own safety. And when you can't when you can't build a case now and we can't develop that trust and protect them in a way to where they feel comfortable coming out and saying what they saw, then that's why when we show up on the scene, you know, we've got 30 people standing around, nobody saw anything. Uh, not that they didn't see anything, but they have their families to protect. They have to still live in that community. But when the, the judicial system becomes a revolving door for these criminals, I, I don't blame them for wanting to stick their neck out on the line. They've got to live in that house tomorrow, and they've got to see that guy walk right by their street again. So I, I understand that. And it, it wasn't always that way. And when it wasn't that way, that's when you saw these solvability rates high like they were. Yeah. Um, and that was without the technology that we have today. So can you imagine if we had the DNA processing, the technology we have with guns back in those days when, you know, solvability was 80, 90 percent on these cases and some rural communities was even higher. Whew, man, uh, it would have it would have been a great show to see. Now we have to rely based solely on technology because of that factor in these big cities where the crime rates are so high. You look at that 
processing, man. And, and that's a revolving door. A lot of these criminals are getting let out before the officers can get the paperwork together. Yeah. Yeah. So that was going to say that's the, the conversely. That's can you imagine trying to live in a large metropolitan area without that technology today? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Your clearance rates. I, I mean, I think at their worst, uh, Chicago PD had clearance rates below 20% for homicides. Wow. And I think, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, from the article I just read, they're they're back up closer to fifty percent. But like in in Lafayette, um, you know, our clearance rate has always been a hundred percent. Of course, we're not working hundreds of homicides right. a year. We're working a right. handful a year, and um, you know, everything is you know everything is proportionate. But when you when you have that community trust and and people know that if somebody does commit a heinous crime like that that you know they're almost certainly going to be held accountable for it. that's just not the case in in every city in america no we're lucky in hamilton county because it is I mean, you commit a crime in hamilton county we're coming after you you know i don't care if it's shoplifting even the, the petty stuff people are like oh that's so petty it don't matter we have guys we'll go three counties to grab a shoplifter bring them up here and put them in jail I mean, we have a sheriff up here that says, hey, my jails are open. Let's fill them. Um, you know, we've got a prosecutor's office that says, hey, not in this county. So, yeah, we're lucky. We can spend the time. You come up here and commit a yeah, small level crime or, you know, if, if it's a, you know, even a, a more heinous crime, we have the time, the resources to come after you and we will put you in jail. Yeah. So that it doesn't surprise me when I see, you know, these flights that are occurring from uh, large metropolitan areas into the suburbs and you know it, it but it that creates a, a lot of other a lot of other problems and you know I don't want to get into a political discussion about this but you know the obvious really should and you know here's maybe the better the better question to ask is what what does the future of policing look like in some of these areas because now look um what we what we're seeing in New York City, which for it and New York City is for the size of that city, it's still an incredibly safe city, all things considered. But in the 70s, you know, it was extremely dangerous to live in the, in New York City. And then especially into the 80s with the crack epidemic and the violence that was occurring. But, you know, by everybody pitching in and everybody pulling on the on the same end of the rope, you know, they became the, the safest, largest metropolitan area in the world per capita. Now we're seeing them move in the opposite direction. Uh, they're going away from things like broken window policing, uh, focusing on the little things and the small things like you are down in your city. You know, that's a priority for your officers is to focus on these small problems uh, because small problems become big problems. And if you can address things and it's just like, uh, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's it's almost like raising children in a way, right? You know, everyone's going to make mistakes, but if you can course correct at an early time, then the outcomes down the road are going to be far better. And when you don't course correct and when there is no accountability, then what's the incentive not to keep doing what makes you feel good or what you want to do or what you like to do or what's easy in the moment? And you wind up with, uh, you know, a 24-year-old Marine, you know, trying to subdue a you know, uh, a mentally ill subject on a subway and, you know, subway car. And unfortunately, you know, that guy winds up passing away and, and now you're left with, you know, and now we're looking at the, the interesting thing is, is what do we focus on? 
you know, as a society, you know, about that incident. You know, we're, we're, you know, we're down now looking at the chokehold. And, you know, the chokehold is all the way at the end of a long, long conveyor belt of, of a lot of things that have gone wrong. And now we want to, now we want to have accountability. Now people demand accountability. Nobody demanded accountability uh, from the 40 some previous arrests that this guy had had. The fact that he was accosting people on the train. And now somebody who steps in and does what they believe is the right thing in the moment, right, wrong, or indifferent, um, they act. And this is where, this is where we want to have a point of accountability. And, you know, the police, the policing world is very familiar with that. Um, and we've, we've had a taste of that for a while. Well, and I, I think the policing world seeing that pendulum swing back and I, and this is why yes. before body cams, right? Before body cams, the big cry was we need body cams to, uh, prove that these officers are mean as corrupt as we've always said they were. So we got to put body cams on. So we put body cams on and what's the result? Kind of the opposite. You know, just like I see it every day, not every day, but I see it a lot up here. People call in, hey, this happened, that happened, da, 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 I need, I demand justice. I want this to happen right away. Let me review the body, body cam. Oh, because the body cams we have on, we don't wear a box. It's not the big Axon box. So a lot right. of people don't even know that we have them. Oh, you got body cam on that? Yeah, I'll review the body cam. Well, that's okay. You know, it probably wasn't exactly how I remember it. Um, <laughs> okay, we're, we're, we're good with it. And up here with my guys, I'm telling you the amount of restraint they use and the abuse that they can take at times is incredible. So I don't think the narrative the across policing in the nation that the people wanted to find out of these body cams is finding itself. Matter of fact, I think it's been more advantageous to the officer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, th those were interesting discussions that we, that we were having back then. And, um, you know, the technology and body cams has come a long way and there's some really good companies out there that are making good products and, you know, one of the one of the reasons we landed on Axon when we did is because they were one of the first to really get this CAD integration piece figured out. So you go back to automating processes and, and trying to make sure that you're saving time. Like, you know, our agency is very busy. We run a lot of calls for service. And the last thing I needed was to for an officer to, at the end of a shift to sit and spend an hour to two hours sorting and categorizing videos. And um, the technology now, most most companies now that's yeah, that's a prerequisite, right? You have to be able to do that. But, you know, when they originally came out, that wasn't generally a feature. And, you know, we actually had officers, you know, the, the public would think that the police didn't want to have the body cameras because the main message they get from the mainstream media is, is that, oh, police are, if they don't have these cameras, that, they, that they'll do things that are illegal, <laughs> But we had, we had officers that were actually, we had to write a policy before we even went to body cameras because officers were buying their own. Yes. So, um, and so that's a problem. Uh, well, why is that a problem? Well, because, you know, now the department, then an officer might be selective as to when they share a body camera video and when they don't. And who owns the video? Is it, does the police own the video or does the officer own the video? 
Um, so, I mean, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but there's there's clearly reasons why agencies have to have good policy in place. Um, but when you tell the general public that, they're like, well, really? Officers? Well, why? And uh, real quick, I, I, I've told this story before. I've got to say it again since we're on the subject. But again, back in these Citizens Academy classes, I have every, I ask a question. I, I would go on the first day and the last day. And it was one of my favorite things to do as a chief. I, I absolutely love Citizens Academy programs. And one of the questions that I would ask is how many, raise your hand if you feel like the police, every police officer should be wearing a body camera. Inevitably, almost every hand goes up. And of course that begs the question, right? Well, why, why, why should the police wear a body camera? And Almost always the question become the, the first few answers are to hold the police accountable, to hold the police accountable. And I, I'd love to be able to maybe maybe you know, if we get this show to be a little bit more popular, we'll do a show just on this alone one day, because right. here's what I here's what I like to tell people. I'm like, all right. So you're coming from a position where you feel like if the police don't have a body camera on them, they are prone to illegal activity. That's what you're saying, right? So all cops are prone to being, you know, to conducting themselves poorly with low integrity. Um, and we need cameras to be able to prove when they are. Yeah. And some will flat out say, well, yeah, yeah, that's the way it is. And then I'm like, okay, have you ever applied to try to be a police officer? It, you know, and then I explained to him the 92% attrition rate for applicants that, that nine out of every 10 people. And a lot of these are good people. They're not criminals. They're not bad people. Nine out of 10 people get screened out. They don't even make it to become a police officer. So, but they're dealing with people every single day that are out there that have low integrity, low character, that are breaking the law, that are doing everything they can to avoid accountability. But yet you want to believe them over the person that's been through a significant background check. They've had their body poked and prodded. They've had to sit down with a psychologist. They've had to sit down and take a polygraph. They've had to do all these things. But yet you're going to trust the criminal on the street over the officer that's gone through this whole process. Huh. Yeah, I guess I never really thought about it like that. Yeah, interesting thought. No, I, I love having my officers have them. They enjoy having them. Um, and like I said, it has it's protected us, right? It's protected us against these frivolous complaints that we get. Um, and I don't know as, as much of it as, um, you know, people out there out to get my my officers, but maybe in the nervousness when they're being stopped or the nervousness of the interaction, they don't see things as clearly as they they really are. And so then the perceptions come in, well, he treated me bad or he cussed at me and he did this, he did that. And clearly the body cams have, have been a defensive tool for us to say, no, I, I'm, I'm not saying you're lying. You just don't understand probably what you were saying or how you were acting. And maybe your perceptions were blocked because of the stress of the moment. But um, it's been a great tool for us. I don't I don't see policing going away from them. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I think it's going to go even more the other direction. And this is a perfect opportunity to really kind of transition to actually what we really want to talk about. Right. <laughs> and 
uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm really excited to hear your perspective on this because, you know, you're, I've talked to several people inside your organization and they can't speak highly enough about you and your work about wellness and the things that you've done uh, to really shift the culture in terms of, uh, you know, having a, a, a very officer centric organization where we really care about the officer, um, you know, as a, as a whole person. And I think the body camera is a great place to start when we're trying to educate the public on and raise awareness, because I actually had this idea and I was told, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And, you know, I, I've, I have a lot of regrets, you know, and looking back, you know, of things that I wish I would have done <laughs> and on things that I did do that I probably, right, right. I probably shouldn't have done. Uh, but it's, it's getting easier now. It's like, okay, well, but I wanted, you know, I, I, not a, yeah, it's, it's really kind of this weird, you know, juxtaposition because I'm not a big fan of like cops and shows like that um, because there's a lot of editing. There's a lot of, you know, we just cut right to these, um, you know, the, the more, I guess, flashy type of videos where there's violence, there's fighting, there's things that are going to capture people's attention, but, you know, it glorifies the shows like that will actually glorify the everyday misery of a lot of Americans. And I don't necessarily like to put that. There's a part of me that just feels like that's wrong. You know, we shouldn't be capitalizing on human suffering, but we kind of do. And police officers every day are encountering that call after call after call after call. And the body cameras are capturing all of it. So part of me was just kind of like, maybe we should just throw this out there, unedited, just freaking throw it out there. Um, live stream everybody camera, put it all out there for everybody to see. And then maybe, maybe people would have a different level of appreciation for what an officer encounters when immediately on scene, you get berated. Like you were saying, like, I don't think people understand unless they've been on ride alongs, unless they've been out there and seen it, like the, just the amount of negative energy that gets dumped on a cop on an, on a daily basis. Yeah. And I, and like I said, as I mentioned earlier, man, we are so lucky up here in Hamilton County. Uh, we don't, we, we have the nice encounters, man. I, I, you walk around in uniform up here and people are, I mean, you really can't buy a meal in when you're in uniform up here, people are always telling you thanks, but in some of the harder areas, Metro where I came from, it's not that way. And, you know, it, it is tough. And, you know, I'm like you, I don't know that the society's ready to see all that we see behind the curtain and, and segues right into mental health because we are really seeing the sufferings of what that can do to a person over time. Yep. And when you're day in and day out, how does that affect you? How does that affect your family? Um, I remember back in the day in, in the nineties, when I came on, you know, it was just a you knew that as an officer, you were going to be divorced two, three times. I mean, it was going to have that effect on your family. That's kind of what you signed up for. Um, but nobody ever dug into the why, you know, and, and what do we do to prevent that? And uh, so I think we've taken a lot of great steps up here uh, to ensure um, that, that doesn't happen. We look at a lot at the why. And, you know, like I tell everybody, um, I love the person. I don't care about the uniform. I don't care about the collar brass. I don't care about you know, uh, the insignia on your uniform, that's a job. We, we raise our hand uh, for an oath. What I care about is the person that puts that on. 
What's his family like? What's he, you know, what's bothering him at night? If, if he's got something keeping him awake at night, it's keeping me awake at night. And when you start looking at the person behind the uniform, then we stop treating officers um, like numbers or, or you know, uh, ID numbers. And, and we look a little bit more into that. And then what, what does that really mean? And then where are we putting our focus and our money to make sure that we're taking care of them like we would take care of our own brother? And one of the things that I mentioned when I first got up here, um, unfortunately, where I came from, we, we had in line of duty deaths. And if if a department's never had that, then they don't understand how that affects the department and the way that it can bring the brotherhood together. The issue I've always had is that brotherhood only stays together for a couple of weeks after something like that. And then we kind of all split to go back our own ways. Um, that type of love for one another, a love for each other that we have in these close families with your mom, your dad, your brother, and your sister is what we've brought here to Noblesville. And, uh, and the guys are seeing it. And once they see it and they feel it, then you don't want to ever let that go. And that's why I think that's where we've been fortunate. So the, yeah, that, and that, that's, a you know, uh, where to start right with that? Because not every police department is the same. The environments are different. Uh, what what officers are being exposed to are different, um, and for but yeah, you know I don't care how small or how big an agency is, you know officers are going to ex- be exposed to trauma. Yes, um, and there somebody has to work shift work. Somebody's got to be there overnight, whether you're busy all night or whether you're you're just trying to stay awake all night to be there to be ready for when somebody needs you because that's what tw- being a 24/7 organization is and that in and of itself shift work puts a tremendous amount of physical stress on a person so what you start to see and this was this was just fascinating to me uh, you know as a as you know I, I my first 14 years I worked in patrol I, I worked as a as a patrol officer then I was a, a, a sergeant in um and then I was a, a shift lieutenant for six years. Uh, and the, yeah, it was, yeah, it was 12, 14 years. That's what I did. And, you know, that's kind of all I knew was working midnight shifts and working patrol. And then when I, when I did actually wind up going to a different unit and, and was working days for a while, um, it, you know, the kind of like thing, I started sleeping a little bit different. I start feeling a little bit different. Like colors were a little brighter. So, right, right. you know, it's like, oh, wow, there's like a whole nother world out here. Um, you know, people were different. You know, when you work when you work nights and days, you know, when you're working nights, generally people are in crisis during days. It's, you know, when you're out during the daytime, you know, it's, cra- you know, of course, bad things can happen during the day. But generally it's sure. traffic accidents. It's, you know not not necessarily as much of your serious crime so you just get a different part of you just see a different part of the world and you're socialized even as an officer you're socialized a little bit differently but anyway the the cumulative stress over the years right it it builds up it builds up and so you meant you said something the key word there right how do we teach officers to be able to understand this and how do we, how do we teach organizations quite frankly to know that you know, officer wellness is something that we need to build in on day one, not after somebody breaks. And I think the old model was, 
you know, there's always someone coming in the door next. And we don't necessarily have to look at people um, in that holistic way. Officers, we're going to train them. We're going to have high expectations. And then if they fail us, they fail themselves, you know, out the door they go next 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 officer up. Uh, and that's just that's that's not the model moving forward. It's just not going to happen because guess what? Nobody's coming like they used to. And and yeah, just just a lot of different a lot of different challenges moving forward. Yeah, and I think the you know we talk about the old model. I I don't even know that a that a model even existed back in my day. I mean, there was a I guess there was something that you heard of called EAP that was some building somewhere that nobody knew about. You'd walk in and to a bunch of people that nobody ever knew before, and you're going to sit and talk to somebody that nobody's ever heard of or seen, and that's supposed to fix things when officers aren't like that. That's not how we work, and that's probably why nobody ever went back in the day. We just kind of flipped that all up on its ear here, and what I mean by that is we take a proactive approach, and we 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 don't demonize it. We expect it. And uh, we debrief after critical incidents. Um, you know, some do, some don't. We we do that all the time. If something's uh, a shift has been on something that that's a little stronger than normal, we'll debrief about it. We'll talk about it. We'll bring in our psychologists. We'll bring in the teams, the mentors, the mental health uh, unit comes in, and um, you know, just to, we create that family feel. So you don't feel bad raising your hand. You don't feel bad talking about what's bothering you. And then we make it a very proactive approach uh, to how we're looking at it. So if you were the officer that thought, "Ah, I'm not buying into this, I don't like this, I'm not doing any of this, you're kind of on an island now because the rest of the department is focused in this. And this is where I think um, we will see results down the road. Um, you know, when you when you talk about building foundations, you know, this is something that I think will pay our department, you know, down the road um, several, several years. Because what people forget, I think they don't realize, is just coming and putting this uniform on um, and the things you see is one complete side of it. The officer themselves still has everyday stress that everybody else in society has. They have bills to pay. They have spouses. They have children. They have children that are struggling in schools. They have money issues like everybody else. So all the stress that everybody has in society, we have it because we're people of society, right? We're people of this society. Then we put on this suit of armor, go do a business that just adds to that. We used to call them um, in my circles when I would talk down in Metro, we'd call that, you know, kind of layers of cheese. Just like when you see a big cheese pack in the store, you know, I'll have layers of cheese, but none of none, if we're not taking any of those layers off, it just builds over a career. And then, so if we don't manage it right, then we start seeing destructive stuff. You know, we start seeing, you know, abuses come in, we start seeing divorces come in, we start seeing all this other stuff that has plagued law enforcement for years. It's just, it's time for us to stand up and and reverse that cycle. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned Metro, right? Because you come from an agency that was recognized um, by the United States Attorney General's Office for their wellness program uh, as as one of the best wellness programs in the country, right? Here's here's a program at Indy Metro that that we can all learn something from. Um, 
What, um, so what, what elements of that, you know, and from the approach that Indy Metro took, did, did, did that, did you take some of that? Does that resonate with you when you, when you moved to uh, Noblesville PD? Yeah, Noblesville, um, they had a, a very long established relationship with the clinician here. So we are, we had that, that piece of the puzzle was already in place. It was just a matter of building upon that and shooting this thing even farther. And, and some of the ideology that I started with was like, you know, I said, one of our core functions is I want to, when the officer leaves and retires from Noblesville, I want them to be better than the day they walked in the door. And so that, that kind of spawned a, well, how do you do that? And I, I looked at it as we started with what we called a three, three-tier approach, uh, looking at your mental health, your physical health, and your financial health. All three of those pieces are what affects a police officer that we have known about for the last hundred years, right? Those three pieces, one of them will break and the whole stool will fall. It's like a three, three um, leg stool. So what we did was we started with that approach. We said, well, and you know, I got some pushback. How are you going to make me better? I, I came in at 22. How are you going to make me better than at, at 55, 60 when I leave? And so what I approached was I said, look, when you came in at 22, you probably never had regularly mental, uh, healthy, a healthy mental approach to life. Probably had never on a regular emptied out, you know, your toolbox, never cut those layers of cheese. You just have built them up to your 21, 22. You came on the police department, added layers. So what we're going to do is we're going to take care of your mental side. We're going to keep your mind fresh and healthy um, through the different programs that we offer. Physical. Yeah. Hey, I came on at 20 or 21 years old. I'm, you know, best shape of my life. Well, we're going to do even better than that. So now what we do is we, we can send our guys to, we call it the Dari training through Protein Tactical to where they'll always look and see how you move, right? So it's it's kind of like that, you know, that system where they make video games. And they can tell you, oh, your hip's only working at 35% or your shoulder. And they focus on three areas of, of you and your physical being. And then they will work through programs to make that hip work better than it's ever worked. Work on that shoulder. So that shoulder is working better than it's ever worked. So your physical side, we're going to push you to be physically in shape. And then we're going to add these nuances to the physical side that will make you move and feel better than you've ever felt um, through testing, nutrition-based. Most people at 21, they never had to worry about nutrition, right? So we focus heavy on nutrition so that now you're building a lifetime when you go to retire to know what healthy eating and nutrition looks like with your lifestyle. You didn't have to worry about it at 21, but now that you're 55, you do. And then your financial side. Um, you know, most people didn't have money at 21. So when we take you at 21 and we talk to you financially about how to move and use your money, when you get 55 and you're ready to retire, now you're financially sound. And with those three elements working in concert, we send you out better than the day you walk through the door. And that was the foundation. And then everything's just kind of grown from there. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so what was what's the name of the company that you use that's doing the uh, the the tactical, the physical tactical assessments? The Dari assessments. Yes. Pro team tactical. So what, pro team tactical. Yes. Yeah. Do you did you use them? 
Well, no, we do something similar. We did something similar, but I, I love that concept. And, you know, I'm, um, I, I came, my wellness background really came from the physical side. You know, I came from, you know, I was a tactical guy. Um, I, I got exposed very early in my career to CrossFit, I became a CrossFit coach. I opened up my own CrossFit gym and you know, I joke about it now, like a lot of people, when I got appointed to the chief's office, were freaking out because they thought I was going to make everybody do CrossFit. Like, oh, my God, <laughs> she's going to make us all do CrossFit. Yeah, I, so and I gonna... never did. I never did. I But I did open a, a gym and, you know, like, I want you to get in here, right? It's a matter of, yes. of you know, educating people on what's possible and then removing barriers uh, uh, barriers to entry and, and removing reasons why you can't do these things and and. Um, so that, that's really, I'm really, so do, did you get a lot of buy-in? Did people, did people like that where they, you know, and are they using it? Yeah. So I think at first when I said that, you know, Hey, I'm going to send you out better than when you came in there, you know, kind of skeptic to that. Like, well, how are you going to do that? And then, so when I started explaining how this works, I said, yeah, just like with protein tactical, I said, so protein tactical came to us. And, and if you're not familiar with them, Protein Tactical was set up by professional athletes, Jim Sorge, Joey Vandever. Um, we were both professional baseball players. Of course, everybody knows Jim Sorge um, as professional quarterback. And what they said was professional athletes are treated a certain way when they have an injury, right? They're given the best, right? Because you're talking millions of dollars, got to get them back on the field. They took that same model and said, we're going to do that with public safety only. It's not for families. It's not for you know, just anybody, if you are public safety, police and fire, we are creating this to take care of your injuries. And so they did, they put a shop, we joined very early when they started, uh, because I love that idea. I want the best for my guys. So this was the very best that was offered. So when my guys would have an injury, they were getting them back in the game so much quicker than what we had seen before, uh, as we were dealing with, you know, um, you know, you say you could have an injury before you'd have to go to the doc, you'd wait for x-rays, you'd wait for this, then you'd wait for therapy appointments. They eliminated all of that. And we were seeing that our guys were getting right back in the game so much quicker. So that was a big step uh, when I when we went to that direction to show guys that, yes, I mean what I say when we can make you better. And then so as we started sending some of the older guys through that they couldn't bend as well as they thought. They didn't realize they had a problem. So Dari exposed them. I mean, we had uh, my chief of patrol who is, seems to, you know, he's very fit and takes pride in, in keeping himself fit. And, you know, he, I think his feelings were hurt when he found out <laughs> certain parts of his body weren't moving uh, the way that he thought they were. And so that each one of those little pieces of the pie got people to thinking, man, the, the department is behind me. They do care more about just a uniform showing up to take a run, but they, you know, I really want them to have a healthy retired life, healthy mentally, physically, and financially with those three areas. Because what I've always told these guys is look, the lifespan of a chief in Indiana is about two years, I think on average. It's not how we interact now, but how do we interact after this? When we're old and we meet at the grocery store or we meet at a hardware store, are we hugging each other, talking about family, 
talking about everybody's kids, seeing how everybody's doing? Or do we see each other and then kind of walk in the opposite direction? And unfortunately, in law enforcement, the latter is what we see a lot of times. And I don't want that. And I didn't want that when I got up here. So the wellness part of it was part of us kind of backing our own game. That when I tell you I love you in roll call, when I see you in the hall and I give you a hug and I tell you I love you, then what am I doing to back that up? And this is part of where our resources go to show that. That yes, the way that you feel, the way that, that you physically feel, and then what's in your bank account is a big deal to me. And we want to make that as robust as possible. Well, that's so that, you know, the, the bank account, a lot of times what we're it, what we're hearing is, hey, we need we need better pay. We need better benefits. And I'm never I'm never going to be one to say that we don't, because I do think that uh, we are as a state, we're just far behind. Um, right. We don't pay enough. Uh, we don't have health insurance when we retire. Uh, it no, doesn't. Pensions are behind. Right? Our pen, yeah. Way, way behind. And that that's. Um, you know, that, that's something that has to be addressed. Right. Um, yes. And, and I, I'm hoping that, that we can do that. Maybe that, maybe we have that a whole nother conversation, but, you know, for, for, for a new chief, like you said, right. You're, they're coming in, um, and some of them aren't going to have the experiences that you've had. They're not coming from a, a, a time when, like I, I've worked through very, very busy areas. I've worked in a large police department. I've been under a lot of stress, a lot of pressure. I've been in a lot of critical incidents uh, and they might be really young and they don't know what they don't know yet. Um, and they may not prioritize health in the same way that you do. So what, what would your advice be to a young chief uh, or a young leader that's moving in a position where they can influence uh these types of programs inside their inside of their agencies. I mean, the message is pretty cr clear. I mean, <laughs> you've already said it, but uh, when people say, oh, we can't do that or we can't afford that, I mean, what would your response be? My response is that sign hanging by your your head right there. All your excuses are lies. And, and that is <laughs> uh, as simple as that may seem. That is so true. Um, you know, it, officers are the best observers of anybody I've ever seen. You cannot fake these roll calls. Um, these officers out on the street, you can't. If you're genuine and you're talking and communicating with them, they know it. And then so, you know, I would always say we've got as chiefs, we've got to get out of this office and out of this chair and we got to go find out what's hurting our people. What do they need? What's important to them? Um, because, you know, some things that are they're important to me, especially at this stage in my life, like you mentioned, not important to that 22 year old who's got plenty of money in his pocket right now. Right. He's not married. He's out here living the life all the part time he wants. He has one person to worry about himself. Um, so I've got to go connect with him and find out what's important to him now. And then once he sees that and he realized that I'm genuine. Then when I explain things to him about like, hey, let's get your finances in line, not now, but for 30 years from now. He believes it. He trusts. We've already built that foundation. When I tell him, look, let's go like my patrol chief, go through the Dari system, find out what's not working on you 100%. You know, he goes and he does it. It ain't what he wants to hear, 
but he goes and does it, makes himself better. When we do scans, when we do all this pre-test and, and we send these young cats to go have their heart evaluated, you know, they're doing that out of trust that we are putting them in the right situation because they feel great, right? I'm 22 years old. I can take the world. Well, we don't want, we're doing this because of love and that we want to get you to a certain place. And the chiefs that just get caught up in the office, and, and you know as well as I do, that they, these seats can bury you in it if you're willing to do it. Um, They'll allow suck you it. in. They'll yeah. suck you in. Um, but yeah, they've got to have a vision in mind uh, of where they want their department to be. And then take no excuses to get there. Um, and I've, I've said that when um, when we were looking at things like therapy dogs, right? I. I never knew what an impact a therapy dog would have on our community, much less with my own officers. So when I first brought in the therapy dog and um, we were, she's being used into the community, we started getting great response. So then my handler came to me and said, hey, chief, uh, we're so busy. Luna, our therapy dog, is so busy in the community that we're not getting to roll calls the way we need to. The officers aren't really having that much time. I went back to the donor who donated the first dog. And I said, Hey, this hat in hand, this is the issue I've got. I don't, she's so in such demand. I don't have time uh, or she doesn't have time to give our officers what, what they would, what, how they could use a therapy dog. The donor graciously said, let's get another dog. Let's get a dog solely for the officers. So a lot of times I, I, my excuse could have been when I'm looking at your sign, my excuse could have been, I don't have the money for a second therapy dog and everything that goes with it. But we put that excuse aside. I said, this is important. It's a need that our officers would love to have. And it fits within our uh, mental health unit. Uh, we went out, hat in hand, did a little begging, a little pleading. Um, and we've got an, another dog being trained right now that will be solely for our in-house officers. So I think if if chiefs put aside the excuses, know what their mission is and say, man, I love these guys like I love my own kids. There are no excuses when it comes to our own kids. Why would we have excuses for officers? Yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit about this because um, I used to have one of these hanging up in in my in my uh, secretary's office. It was in the foyer when I would come into mine. Oh, that's it was awesome. Visible. Well, right. <laughs> well, you would think so. Right. But here's yeah. here's where I made a mistake. And this, you know, I have to own this. Uh, what I didn't do before I put that up there was explain to people what it meant. And what I didn't do was say, hey, when you see that, and if you internalize the message, take a closer look at it. Because when you look at this on this, and I don't know if this was just the design and the way that it was made, but you look at it and you're like, you know, it is kind of offensive when you look at it and you think, ah, you know, but when you read the subtext, so if you ever pull this up, um, this is a Jocko print. Um, it says... I, I don't have the energy. I feel sick. I'm weak. I'm tired. I don't know. I'm inexperienced. I'm young. I'm old. I'm fat. I'm ugly. All of these things, it's it just in the subtext underneath of it. So you have to get up close to be able to see it. And you know, it's the same for all of us. This is what we do. We, you know, we tell ourselves these things all the time. And so for me, this was my reminder 
every time I'm walking into my office, I had to walk by that print. And, um, and you know, some people kind of found that offensive and, uh, didn't came, they didn't come to me. Uh, it got back to me and I eventually pulled it out of there and put it into my office. I get, and you know, you know, bad on me for not, you know, for not communicating that the way that I was hoping that people would, uh, you know, understand it, but yeah, it's true. And that, you know, I love to hear, I love to hear that message, right? Because, um, yeah, there are so many things that we tell ourselves and, you know, we create these roadblocks and, uh, you know, we immediately, you know, and then we do, we internalize things and we get upset and then we, and then it's just like, ah, oh, you know, we, and we, and cops, we, you know, we're in this negative environment. And if we don't, if we're, if someone's not there to grab you and pull you out of that loop every once in a while, that loop can suck you in. So you need each other to, 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 pull you out of those, uh, the, you know, I call them the doom loops, right? When you get stuck in the doom yeah. loops. Um, but you, so you're the second person now, and it sounds like you've probably had this therapy dog for a while. So if I, I had a, did a previous episode with uh, Joe Monroe, he's the chief from the University of Kentucky PD. And um, I've been going down there. It's hard to believe now, but it's seven years that I've been going down and presenting at their, their transform conference that he puts on. It's this great little hidden gem and we do a section on wellness. And, and again, coming from the physical side, one of the things that we've done is we do these comprehensive lab uh, blood workups that we call it the police panel. And we're looking at data in there that just is not going to get looked at, at a, through a regular blood test. And, um, but I'm in that, I'm in the room on, I went down early cause I like to sit in the class and I like to hear what people are concerned about, what, you know, what, what they're talking about in, Paul Butler was speaking and it's always, you know, anytime you get a chance to see Paul Butler speak, you know, it's always a good opportunity, but he brought in their, their canine. It was a police service dog. It wasn't a regular, you know, and as, as a chief, right. You can, you know, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. You know, I, I have a little unresolved trauma from police canines. Um, <laughs> but We've got five of those too, you know. Yeah. They, they are they have a little different mission than what Luna does. Yeah, that that mission is definitely different, and um, you know, it can definitely uh, as a chief, they can cause you a lot of uh, a lot of sleepless nights. But this, he brought this dog in, and before they even introduce the dog, the dog just starts working the room. He's walking around, and you know, some of the officers immediately go to it and pet it. Others are kind of looking at it like, oh, whatever. And then, and then the dog, he could sense it. Like he knew and he would just come up and like nudge, you know, put his nose on the hand and, you know, the officer, you know, pet the dog and then the dog would come. All right, I've done my job here. I'm moving on. It was it was fascinating to watch. And so they want they have two two of these service canines. And I was like, that's freaking brilliant. Um, I never I never even thought of using a service dog inside having a police officer trained as as a service dog handler. So. Kudos to you for for having a uh, you know recognizing that and seeing the benefit that it can bring. Yeah, Luna's the best money I've ever spent as a chief. I I tell every chief that you can't go wrong. I mean, community loves her, um, officers love her. I mean, because that's all she does is go around and give love. Now she's got the best job in the world because she gets loved on all day long. But you know, just like you said, and I use this as an example. I was in a staff meeting. And um, Luna was there and she'd had a rough day. So she's in the corner sleeping. She even snores. Dog snores. So she's snoring. <laughs> what, in the, what kind of dog is it? She's a black lab. 
Awesome. And so she's snoring in the corner, um, completely just out. And during this meeting, I, I'm, I'm animated. I'm not mad, but yeah, I'm becoming passionate and my voice is raising and I'm, um, I'm really wanting to hit home to my chiefs, what I'm talking about. And so she gets up out of it, out of her sleep, comes over, just puts her head like right on my lap. And like, you know, are you all right? You know, so I give her a few, but no, no, I'm okay. Everything's good. I just, I was just getting a little loud. So yes, they are, when we got her, they said, you know, she's a, you know, a puppy with a master's degree and they do that. And I probably did not know um, when we added her to the program, we was expecting her to be 50, 50, 50 in-house, 50% out in the community. And the response from the community has been so great, whether it's schools um, whether it's retirement centers, whatever she's out working and she works scenes. So, um, he's constantly listening to the radio and a pop on a scene. Um, the wins that we have had out of the community are just heartbreaking. Some of the stories that I've got pays for that dog several times over. And where it kind of broke my heart was when we had the conversation about how much my guys love to interact with her when they're coming in off a shift or whether they're there for roll call, but she's not there because of the time for the community. So I didn't want to pull from the community. I wanted to enhance that. And uh, I was lucky enough. We've got a great family that loves canines and has donated several of our canines. And when I went to them, uh, they could be more happy uh, to get us another dog in here for our officers. So yeah, if you're a chief out there and you do not have a therapy dog, I'm telling you to be the best money spent because, you know, it seems like everything we do as chiefs is scrutinized one way or another. And uh, this is something that is a win-win nobody complains about. Yeah. And, you know, who doesn't want that? You know, that's, um, but yeah, the, that was really cool. And, and he takes the, he was telling me about um, them bringing it on crime scenes where in particular cases where you've had some domestic violence, uh, and you have young children involved or people that just don't want, you know, or people, you know, death notifications, things like that, where, you know, the, the public sometimes, you know, uh, you know, th these are things that are easy to not have to think about because you you don't have to. And I don't want people to have to think about that stuff. Right. You know, that yeah. really is kind of the role of of the police is to be there in that guardian type of of role. It's not to say that you're trying to hide things from people. You just you know, minimize things, you know, the negative things that you can, uh, yeah, but, we but somebody family seeing that. Right. Exactly. And, but, you know, the officers are absorbing it. And so the officers have to have a way to offload this. Um, and, and, you know, my, my early career, it was always that, and I've talked about this ad nauseum on the podcast, so I won't go into it, but really I just came to the wellness from the physical fitness side of things and the nutrition side of things. And, you know, I, I love the, what you're doing with the, with the stool and the triangle. I, I had a friend here. He was a, uh, he was an orthopedic doc um, early in my SWAT days. And I was actually in conversations with him to bring him on as a tactical medic. But early in his career, he had worked, um, he was in Boston and he'd worked with the Patriots and, and professional hockey teams. And he, he had asked me, he's like, he, he was working on this model where he was like, you know, if you treated every citizen like a professional athlete, what, 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 what would the impact be on our healthcare system in America? If we take a more preventative approach and he's, and 
and it was very it was a very similar mindset that I was developing um, from a wellness perspective. I did my first wellness talk to our agency. It was in 1998, 1999. And in previous episodes, I talk about it. But that was like when he said that, I was like, man, that makes perfect sense. And, uh, you know, a little plug for, you know, for the main sponsor for this podcast, you know, Performance Protocol. That's exactly what they saw when they were doing. Um, they, they really didn't have any intention of working in law enforcement. They they had a a, a executive coaching model that they were bringing to the public through, you know, basically the private sector. And in the in the COVID era, in the George Floyd era, they had a lot of police officers that started reaching out to them and saying, hey, I want to I want to learn more about this coaching. And so they pivoted. And one of the examples that that and I I tell the CEO, I'm like, when we present in Indiana, I'm like, listen, we got to get away from the Tom Brady analogy, right? You know, right. This is, <laughs> Indianapolis is not a Tom Brady town, you know, we got to, but it's hard right. to, you know, it's, <laughs> it's hard not to acknowledge like when you look but Indianapolis is also the home of the NFL draft. And, you know, right. when you watch that video of Tom Brady at the combine, you're like, and they show a picture of where his shirt's off and you're like, that guy, he's not going anywhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, but the analogy being right, but Tom Brady, you know, and he says this, he's just been very fortunate along the way where he's had coaches just like it sounds like what Pro Team Tactical is doing, you know, on the physical side of things like you know, Tom Brady's had, you know, he has a quarterback coach, he has a nutrition coach, um, he has a meditation coach, he's got all of these yep. different resources that he can go that lifts him up as a as an individual and makes him better. And, you know, that concept, I think, is just it's one that's been sorely lacking in public safety. And it a lot of it really, you know, sadly, and this is where, again, we get into a defunding conversation. This is kind of why I've been so outspoken about why defunding is just the complete opposite. It's the exact wrong thing to do, because if you want to make your public safety better, you have to invest in your people and you got to give them the resources um, and it starts with developing the individual. And that in the end is going to what's going to build a better culture. I, I it just I get so excited when I hear when I hear chiefs talking like that, where it's just like, hey, look, we're going to we're just going to we're going to develop the whole individual. and We're going to start on day one. And, and what I really want our listeners to know is that you know, that takes investment. It really does. And you can't it, you can't do this stuff for free. Um you got to find the right people that have the right training. And, 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 and so many people that have these skill sets, they do want to come in and help. And uh, it's sometimes you know, where I, I do get a little discouraged because you have people that want to help. And then we just, it's like, man, there's, there's, we don't have research and development money. We don't have funds uh, uh, for, for some of these things that I know will have such a huge impact, but you know, like I said, you know, I, I just got to look at my own poster and say, no excuses. I just got to find a way. I got to find a way around it and just keep chipping away at, at, at the things that I know will make a difference. And that's that's what's fun about this show is I, I really, you know, talking with people like you that understand it, that get it. And, you know, hopefully we can, you know, build and I think help to continue the groundswell that's already started in terms of of getting that investment in individual officers. 
Well, and I, you know, I, I think that I just had a meeting with, because uh, we're constantly trying to train as, as every department does, but train, you know, not only my officers, but my supervisors, we have a very robust uh, supervisory training that we do uh, every quarter and um, a lot of times throughout the month. And then I also try to train my chiefs. And one of the, the things we were meeting with yesterday, we brought an executive in uh, from a Fortune 500 company to talk about how do we get to the next step? How do we get to the next level of when it comes to servant leadership? And what does that look like with our people? And one of the things he challenged us with when it, it kind of falls right back to your excuses, when we talk about, um, you know, he one of the examples he gave was he wanted to bring um, soda in for his employees. And uh, they didn't have the money for that. You know, they're not. Uh, although they had this uh, big call center with lots of employees. So he went out and worked with uh, the soda company and said, hey, let's partner. Let's do this. What's available? What can you do? I don't have funding for this and was able to get it brought in at no cost. So if he would have just fell back on the excuses that we're talking about, I don't have money for this. I don't have money for that. Um, without digging deeper and really going after it, none of that stuff and the things that he brought to his company uh, would have ever came to fruition because it was just used an excuse. Well, I don't have that in the budget. I don't have the money for that. And I give you an example was one of the, when it comes to our mental health, um, I said from the very beginning, nothing is off limits. If it will help the officer, I am all in. We just got to figure out how to do it, how to implement it. So one of the things that was brought to us was this um, horse therapy and having uh, officers that are struggling with depression, anxiety, PTSD, uh, work in a program around these horses. And, and so we partnered with Agape, which is north uh, part of Hamilton County. And when we first talked to them, they're like, well, we never really have had public safety. Uh, you know, we don't know of really anywhere in the country that's brought this to public safety. It's used in other elements. It's used in you know other parts of society, but not, you know, with public safety. So we didn't have the money for that. That wasn't budgeted. That was just something that was brought to me. And I wasn't going to let it die just because we didn't have the money or the funding at the time if it could help my officers. So what we once we started meeting with them and explaining to them, and people are very, very empathetic to the struggles of law enforcement when it comes to mental illness, when it comes to um, depression, things that people normally suffer with, when they hear and understand how that affects our officers too man, they are usually all in. And that's my experience. And uh, so we were very quickly able to work out a grant process, grant funding for my officers. So I've got three going through it now um, in, in kind of a pilot program to see if it's going to work. And then we will look to the next steps going forward to add that piece into our toolbox, where I think it would have been very easy to say, well, that, I don't know if that's going to fit, don't have the money, and we just kind of sit back and take the lazy way out. So we're really hoping to push that envelope with programs like that. You know, that that's really cool that you bring that up, because I was just, I think it was, there was a 60 Minutes episode where they were talking about um, a program that they were running in Wyoming, the Wyoming Department of Corrections was using, it was a horse training program where they were taking, uh, they were taking convicts and as part of their, uh, it, 
it wasn't quite a full work release program, but uh, a controlled work release program where they had the opportunity to go and work with these horse trainers, learn how to uh, train horses. And they were taking, because they have a huge wild horse population in Wyoming and they're wanting to protect it, they, they have to they have to call that herd. So what they do is they every once in a while, they round them up and they bring them in and they train wild horses and then they sell them, you know, they, they break them and then they sell them. Uh, and, and the program eventually pays for itself, but yeah, that, you know, just another innovative and interesting way. I, it just goes to show you, like, there is no, there are no limits on what you can do and there's always opportunities there. And again, kind of cool to be able to share this and and have these conversations to see what people are doing um, around the country that that are you know that's really that's making a difference because sadly the suicide numbers for officers are are through the roof right they're in some in some ways they they suspect it's higher than than what we're seeing in the in the veteran community um, number one killer of, and I won't go down <laughs> my heart disease. Uh, wellness discussions today, but number one killer of police officers is cardiovascular disease. Um, uh, number two is suicide. Um, and, and you know, in this in in this profession uh, is probably where we've neglected the um, physical health side of that more than anything. You know, when you look, we talked about our fire uh, brothers, and uh, that's a big deal to them. They put gyms in the firehouses. They give them plenty of time to work out the physical part. It's just been neglected in our profession for so long. And, you know, and everybody will tell you, um, as I'm sure you're the expert in, but your physical health ties to your mental health and it ties to, you know, how you're doing. But that's always one thing that's been neglected. And that was our challenge, Um when I, when we started this program, this wellness program, that's why part of it, you know, we, part of our three tiered stool, we call physical because this is what I pointed out. And this is what I challenged my team to. I said, if anybody comes to us and says, Hey, I'm struggling because uh, I have anxiety. We put our arms around them. Hey, I'm struggling because I have depression. We put our arms around them. I'm struggling because of alcohol. We put our arms around them. But in law enforcement as a profession, if you're struggling with weight, we call you lazy and eventually can fire you. Yeah. We don't put our arms around you at all. Matter of fact, we do the opposite. And, I, you know, I put my flag in the ground. We're not doing that here. If you're overweight here and you want help, we will give you the resources. We will give you the training. We will give you the time to bring you back healthy because you're one of ours. But when you when we started digging into this, there's not a lot of programs. There's several programs out there for alcohol, several programs for substance abuse, several programs for, you know, any other thing you're struggling with. But if you're just heavy because that's how you handle stress, then, eh, sorry, you're lazy. You're We're going to end up firing you. And that's the wrong attitude. And because it's the stress that's causing all of this, I'm sure, right? People, people are stress eaters. Um, some people, maybe they don't resort to alcohol. Maybe they resort to food. Well, the result is still the same. It's hindering your ability. It's hindering your mental health. Um, so we're, we're trying to take a different approach to that. It sounds like that's the approach you've already taken a long time ago, um, you know, with your career, Chief. But um, that's definitely something we want to expand on. Well, yeah, and that's I'll just touch on that real quick because it's important. Um, and I, I talked about it in my in my very first episode, but I, I 
I didn't go down this path intentionally. I just, I was, I feel very fortunate because I lucked upon some of this information just at the right time when I was ready to receive it. And then through some trial and error, I just, you know, I physically felt the difference. Like, okay, I, I, I went on a nutrition program to assist with a physical fitness program that I was doing so I could try to make my SWAT team. And I tried one and I went in the complete wrong direction. Like I was tired. I was losing energy. I was getting frustrated. I was, you know, I was getting, you know, like I was uh, having like some, you know, just some mental fog and things that I'd never experienced in my life. And then when I changed my nutritional approach based on a book that I read, I went the complete opposite direction. And of course, then <laughs> maybe too far, right? Because I was telling everybody, I was like the guy who found Jesus, you know, I'm like, you got to read this book. Right, and right. Everybody's like, oh God, here goes Flanley again. Right. Um, but, you know, the the lesson for me was, is okay, these things, they are interrelated. And that's eventually what led me to doing work with uh, Dr. Jim Greenwald at Specialty Health. Um, that was again from... Uh, some work that I'd read in Chiefs Magazine back in 2013 that there was police department, Steve Pitts, who's now retired chief from uh, Reno PD, had been working with uh, this doctor, uh, trying to understand why their, why their uh, occupational care costs were so high inside the police departments. Why were they paying so much for uh, treatment of cardiovascular disease? And I was on a, on a parallel path, just in a different state at a different time, um, but we had one thing in common that was a, a nutritional intervention approach that could be used. But the long and the, the long the, the short version of the long story there is through a, a through a simple blood test that you can get done in any lab core for under two hundred dollars. You can look at seven lines of data that will tell you uh, what your ten year cardiometabolic risk is going to be, and this is backed up by two hundred clinical, you know, papers, science backed. Uh, Bill Cromwell uh, was one of the people who was working with Dr. Dr. Greenwald. So, you know, we, we just, we were very fortunate, I think, to kind of stumble upon people that were also, this is where I go back to, there's a lot of people out there just trying to help, trying to do the right thing and trying to, you know, to help us out. The reason why cops are gaining weight is hormonal. It's, it, it's because, you're now sleep deprived. Your cortisol levels go up. When your when your cortisol levels go up, that yeah drives your sugar cravings. It gets your insulin out of balance. Uh, so it, it's it's a long cascading thing. That's why officers, you know, in year when they come out of the academy, they're fit, they're healthy, they can pass these fitness tests, and then two years later, they can't um, if they haven't been keeping up on it because they've gained twenty pounds. What they don't realize is their resting blood sugar has probably gone from you know, the upper 80s to low 90s up into the into the 100s, which is pre-diabetic. And, and what people, you know, the, one of the reasons why it's hard to find programs that will pay for these things is because you're not diagnosed as type 2 diabetic until your blood sugar is above 120. But the data that we've collected has shown 60 to 70% of police officers in America today are walking around, they're insulin resistant, and they don't know it. Um, and I presented a few times with Dr. Gil Martin. You know, he's famous for his work, you know, the emotional survival for law enforcement. And Doc Greenwald and Kevin Gil Martin are friends. And, the, you know, Kevin Gil Martin calls this the insulin resistant bear. And he kind of talks about the angry bear. And we've all heard him talk. And we love when, he, you know, he just, 
he's just got a great way of kind of explaining the psychology of the cop. And we, you are dead right because we we can blame the officer, but not really look at what are what what are the root causes. And then the other way they explain it, and Doc Greenwald explains it, and there's um, Peter Atia actually mentions it in his recent book. But you know, we're we're pulling people out of the river uh, when they're you know way downstream from where they're falling in, instead of just going up upstream to find out. Let's keep these people from falling in the river in the first place, uh, yes. and that is. That is exactly what you're doing. Your three stool, your three legged approach there: uh, fitness, nutrition, financial health, emotional well being. All of these things they're all important. And uh, there's really uh, some incredible work out now by Dr. Chris Palmer, Harvard trained physician, who's looking at. Um, you know, he treats people with very significant uh, neurological diseases, and they found it through nutritional intervention. Uh, we can mitigate some of the effects of these and in some cases completely reverse it. So uh, depression, anxiety, these things have a root. They have, there is a nutritional approach. There is an exercise approach. Um, but where I think we all have to be careful is to think that there's one thing that's going to fix it all right. because there isn't. You have to take a holistic approach and you have to be willing to throw a lot of things at at a problem and provide a lot of these resources. And I think when we do that, uh, we'll we'll start seeing some success. And that, you know, quite frankly, you know, there's it's there's got to be skin in the game from everybody involved. And that, you know, sometimes that doesn't go over well. You know, when you, but you know, it's hard to tell an officer when you're working twelve hour shifts and you're busy all day um, that you they can't. You know, they they just don't have time to work out on their shift. And then now that forces them to use time on their own to be able to do that. You know, firemen don't. You know, they at least have the luxury of being able to get that stuff done while they're at work, most likely in times where, you know, depending on where they work, right. And what their call volume is, um, sure. you know, same with police departments and, and depending on your role inside of an agency, you know, if you're an admin officer, you can find the time to work out. If you're a detective, you can probably build your schedule around it when you're working in patrol. That's not always the case. And that, you know, so that creates some, you know, some imbalances inside the agency that, that lead to difficult discussions about, well, should we do it if uh, or should we not? You know, how do you make it fair? Um, yeah, <laughs> you've been there, though, right? Yeah. And, you know, and, and I and that's what I tell my people, look, we can't get frustrated. Um, you know, we can, you know, like I said, lead them to water. Um, can't make them drink. Yep. But I just want to make sure that they know a number one, we're behind you. Uh, we want you to be healthy. And that we will do everything, anything possible so that you have whatever choice works for you. Um, because like you said, not everything works for everybody, but we're going to give you as anything we can think of. You know, it's just like with, uh, you know, when we talk back about mental health and we were looking at the this agape partnership with the horses. You know, some people are like, hey, I'm buying the horse thing. I'm not, I'm, I'm not into that. I'm not doing that. Well, that, that's not that's fine. We've got other tools, but I'm saying no to nothing. If you can come to me and say, hey, this will help your officers. We just looked at a program with neurofeedback. Um, we're looking at um, music therapy. We're looking at light therapy. We're looking at all of this stuff because I don't want to say no. I want as many tools in the toolbox as possible because what works for some may not work for others. And I don't want any of my officers left out. You know, we we've went down the road. Um, you know, when looking at some physical stuff with officers and working out and, and it hasn't worked because the officer hasn't been motivated. 
but it's not something that they can look back on us and say, we didn't try, we didn't push, we didn't offer. Um, And that's where I think it has to start at the top. Yeah. And, you know, that's why we called our presentation uh, when we talked about the blood test, we called it the blood doesn't lie. (laughs) Right. So, So you're like, all your excuses are lies. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, we, you know, we all tell ourselves these little white lies, right? You know, and those are the ones that are the most dangerous. But when we give somebody a blood test and here's your seven lines of data, and that's ultimately where we kind of centered uh, one of our wellness initiatives right around this. Like, it's all going to start right here. And a lot of that I picked up just from my years of, of uh, owning and operating a CrossFit gym too, you know, training, you know, people in the private sector, everybody, everybody comes. And this is also one of the greatest lessons I learned, right? It's like, everybody comes from a different place and we're all starting somewhere. Uh, And so what we're doing is relative to only us as individuals, but you got to start somewhere and you got to do something. And we're, we're going on, we're, we're already past that 90 minute mark, I think. So I knew this was going to happen. So chief, any final, uh, any final thoughts? I, I, I'm just really, uh, really glad that you took some of your valuable time to, to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. No, I, I appreciate you. And, uh, you know, I'm honored to, to be able to discuss these things with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am so honored that, that you're willing to, to stand uh, for this when it comes to law enforcement and, and talk about it. And man, I really appreciate you reaching out and giving us the opportunity to, to put in our two cents. And, you know, we're not, we're not perfect by any means. We're just trying, man. And, and like I said, uh, what I lack in in education, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but uh, we're going to give to you an effort. So um, I love what you're doing. I, I love how you're bringing these topics up because I think the more that they get out there, the more that people are exposed to them, the easier the hurdles are for law enforcement. Because you know, if we keep if we keep pushing now, you know, it's the seeds that we're planting that will put law enforcement in a better place 20, 30 years from now. And that, that's what we've got to do. You know, we've got to stand on each other's shoulders as we build this place bigger. And I said, I'm very appreciative. I can't be thankful enough that you've given me uh, minutes of your time. And if there's ever anything we can do to repay the favor, I'm all in. Well, uh, I really appreciate that. And uh, something you said, I, I, that's maybe that's our takeaway for everybody. Um, don't wait to start. There's never going to be a perfect solution. There's never going to be a perfect program. It's just, you're not going to find it. Now, eventually we can get things really, really good, but don't let great be the barrier to good. Start somewhere, start small, start with what you can do. And, that, you know, I, I worked on it for a long time myself and I never, I never got it perfected. I was just chipping away. Right. And uh, you've got, so for, for someone that's listening to this, that's really interested in some of these programs, uh, is there a way for them to get a hold of you? Um, does, do you have a contact information or anyone you want to push out to so you can share some of these programs that you're doing? Sure. They can get on um, you know, our website. They can call the office here. The number is 317-776-6340 and ask to speak to anybody they want to. Um, you know, My cell phone number is out there. I don't hide that. It's 317-220-5295. Give me a call. I'll give you everything we got. We don't hide anything. Um, we'll share everything we've got to anybody that wants to come and see it. Uh, you know, we'd be transparent. Win us all to win, right? And in law enforcement, it's not about Noblesville Police Department winning. It's about all of law enforcement winning. 
And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm more than willing to share and learn and and believe me, I'll steal it. If you come to me with some great <laughs> stuff, I'm going to steal it. Uh, I have no We're problem at, at all stealing from other people. If it'll make my people better, I will steal in a heartbeat. So, yeah, we're an open book here at Noblesville. Um, we don't share anything that we can, anything we've got with you. Um, so, yeah, no, thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right, everybody. Really appreciate you spending uh, a little bit of your time with us. Uh, Chief John Mann from Noblesville Police Department. I appreciate your time. And until our, until our next episode, we'll be 1042.